Well, welcome and happy Palm Sunday. It doesn't feel very Palm Sunday-ish with all the rain, but we are going to celebrate Palm Sunday still. I don't know about you and what your history is with Palm Sunday, what uh, you grew up with or what you knew of it, but I remember as a kid, I grew up in the church. I was very fortunate to grow up in the church, and I remember going to church on Palm Sundays and them handing out just all these palm branches that were as tall as I was as a kid. And we would wave them all around in church, and our parents would tell us to make sure we weren't hitting our siblings with them, that we weren't misbehaving. It was a good idea and a bad idea to give a whole bunch of kids giant palm branches and then expect them to sit and not be a distraction in worship. But today is about so much more than just a palm branch. It's about so much more than just a donkey. It's about a different kind of king who has arrived. A different kind of king who is unlike any other that has come before or any other who will come after. And so we're going to explore that king this morning by looking at the text of Matthew. Before we do that, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, continuing to sustain it for us so that we can look at it each and every week. And Lord, we thank you for this time opening up your word. May you speak to us. Lord, we pray that you would give us open ears and soft hearts to hear what you wish to declare today. And may nothing that I say get in the way of your words, Lord. But may you move in the lives and hearts of each person in here whom you have brought to this moment here today. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus, before he rolls in on a donkey, had had a ministry all around Jerusalem during which he had done many miracles, he had taught, he had walked around loving on people and sharing who he was. He had hinted at the fact that he was the Messiah. And as he performed miracle after miracle, and as he taught these marvelous teachings, unlike any that had really been heard before, people wondered, could this be the Messiah? Could this indeed be the one whom we've waited for, the one who was prophesied about, who we've waited our entire lives for? Could this be him? Or maybe this is just another really good rabbi. And yet, as Jesus continued to teach and perform miracles, a resistance began to rise against him as people sought to kill him and sought to silence him. The questions that people asked as to if Jesus really was who he said he was, was he really the Son of God, are questions that people have continued to have throughout the ages, even today. People continue to grapple with that question of, was Jesus really who he said he was? Was he really the Son of God, or was he just another good man, another good historical figure from history? So what does Palm Sunday have to do with whether or not Jesus is really who he says he is? If Jesus really was the Messiah? Well, there are important elements that happen in the story of Palm Sunday in the narrative that are crucial for us to understand who Jesus is as we prepare to celebrate Holy Week and as we prepare to celebrate Easter next Sunday. So we're going to be reading Matthew's Gospel account of Palm Sunday. And you can find different accounts in each of the Gospels. They vary just slightly different ways. But we're going to be spending our time in Matthew's today. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. Now, a little historical background for what's happening here as Jesus prepares to come into Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this time is being ruled by the Romans. There is no king allowed to keep an uprising from the Jews from happening. 
And Roman soldiers are present all over Jerusalem to ensure that behavior is appropriate, that no Jews get out of hand. And the high priest, who we see throughout Scripture talked about, had ceremonial robes that they would put on for the special occasions to lead the people in worship of God. And these robes, they've been taken by the Romans. And they're only allowed to be worn now on Passover, Yom Kippur, or other important religious feast days. You see, the Romans had realized the tremendous power of the office of the high priest. And so they had taken these garments as a precautionary measure. They're trying to keep any sort of uprising from the Jewish people of happening. They have control over Jerusalem. They want to keep it that way. And so they don't want the religious sector of the Jews to cause an uprising in their city that they now have. In fact, the Romans built the fortress of Anonia, which looked over the temple courts looked over the giant temple courts and allowed the Romans to preserve order. Stationed there were 600 armed Roman soldiers on any given occasion. What this led to was the Jewish people absolutely despised Rome. They despised the Roman soldiers that got in the way of their worship. They despised the Roman soldiers who were present at the temple. They despised that their city had been taken over and that they were under the control of Caesar as opposed to God. And so they're waiting for their Messiah to come. They've heard the prophets speak. They've heard that the Messiah will come and will free them. They know the history of Israel where they've been in captivity and bondage only to be freed by God. And so they are waiting for that moment when the Messiah will come and free them. And the most people envision this as being a military takeover of Rome that would free them from Rome. In 518 B.C., the prophet Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's a prophecy that the Jewish people in this time would have been holding on to, would have been waiting and hoping that they would see fulfilled in their lifetime. And Jesus comes as the fulfillment of these prophecies and many others as we're going to see in our text today. So jumping in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 3, that's the context that we're living in in this moment. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So Jesus is outside of Jerusalem in Bethphage, and it's two miles east on the Mount of Olives. And there's a significance to the Mount of Olives because it's tied in to the Jewish messianic history to the coming of the Messiah and this hope that they're waiting for. Even the location of our text today is proclaiming He is here. The Messiah is here. And Jesus instructs His disciples to go into the city. And the disciples are asked to be obedient to His instructions. This unique request that He has of them. You see, sometimes God asks us to do things that are unique or that don't make sense to our minds that maybe seem foolish or, or odd, and yet 
That's what the disciples are asked to do here as they're told to go into the city and to find these animals, to bring them back. But Jesus sends the disciples out in pairs, which reminds me of Mark 6, 7, when the disciples are sent out in pairs before. And even on our walk this morning, a prayer walk, Sherry said, it's so good when we go out in pairs where there's two of us gathered together to be able to pray with one another. It reminds me of what Jesus does here as he sends out multiple disciples into the city to get this donkey. There's an accountability when you're with one another. There's a protection. There's an encouragement that happens when we do ministry with others. When we don't just go at it alone, on our own, left to our own devices. It's important to partner with others. So Jesus sends the disciples and they're given this opportunity to trust him. To trust in Jesus' prophecy here in this moment and his provision of what is needed that it will be available. He doesn't ask the disciples to hunt for the colt or to purchase the colt, but he tells them exactly where they will find it and what is needed. How often does Jesus do the same for us? Tells us exactly where we can find what we need. Yet sometimes we think it should be a bigger deal than it is, or we think it should be elsewhere, and yet we have his word given to us to guide and to lead us. Jesus isn't asking us to go and buy the right thing or say the right thing or have the perfect words, but he's asking us to trust him, to listen to his leading, to recognize in that trust that he is Lord. You see, that's what the disciples do here. They recognize Jesus' lordship. They recognize that their role as disciples is to be obedient to his instructions. And so, when they're instructed to go into the city, they follow his instructions. They're instructed as they go in to state, if someone asks them, why are you taking it, that the Lord needs them. Now, this would not be an inappropriate request in this cultural day by a rabbi. In fact, the NIV application commentary says that the cultural background for this response, the Lord needs it, is the Angaria, which is a dig- which it, where a dignitary could procure use of property for personal reasons. And this right extended to people like rabbis. So the request is not completely unusual. And yet, I'm sure it felt a little odd for the disciples to go and just take the donkey. And yet, Jesus shows the meaning behind this as our text continues Matthew wants us to know that there's a significance to what's occurring, what Jesus is instructing them to do. And so he shows us the importance by linking it with the prophecy in Zechariah. Take a look with me at verse 4 of chapter 21. It says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. You see, right here in this passage, in this passage of Matthew 21, where Jesus is speaking, there are five prophecies in this passage. There's the rejoicing and shouting and worshiping for his arrival that we'll see. There's the entrance of the awaited Messiah coming into Jerusalem. He's exalted as the king, recognized as the king as we'll see the chosen Messiah, and he's a lowly, humble man who comes bringing salvation of the soul. And he rides in on a colt, which is an unusual thing to do for an honored king. These are five prophecies that we can trace back to Old Testament scripture hundreds of years before Jesus fulfills them. 
that God had given his prophets and said, this is a sign to look for that my Messiah will be coming, that my Messiah is here. And so Jesus, right here in our text this morning, is going to fulfill five of those prophecies, which gives weight to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that there is no other. In our text today, we see how Jesus clearly shows that he is the fulfillment of these prophecies, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew is able to recognize that Jesus does these things, fulfills these prophecies as a claim to his kingship, to show the watching and waiting world who he is, to let them know that the one that they've been waiting for, the one that they've been hoping for, the one that they've been praying would free them from Rome, that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't need to wait any longer. They don't need to wonder if they'll see it in their lifetime. He is here. The Messiah is here and has arrived. And yet with the arrival of the Messiah, there is this beautiful humility that is present in the king. See, normally when a king would enter into a city, they would come with such a barrage of pompous environment and atmosphere. They'd come on giant stallions. They'd come with parades and noise and might and power. And yet Jesus comes in on a donkey. The ESV expository commentary once again says, A triumphal entry in Jesus' day resembled a victory parade. A general entered a city captured by siege or battle, or a king visited a city in his realm. If a conqueror, king, if a conqueror entered a city, he rode on a war horse or in a chariot, while people walked before and after him in welcome. That's what would have been expected. And yet, like he does time and time again, Jesus shows up and brings a different way of doing things. He doesn't enter into Jerusalem with the biggest horse or on a chariot designed for a king. He gets a colt and he rides slowly into the city declaring his true kingship. A kingship that isn't based on pride, but rather on humility. Look with me at verse 6 as we continue in our text this morning. It tells us in verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. These two simple verses highlight the obedience of the disciples, and that's why I pause there. They're truly simple verses. They'd be easy to lump with something else, and yet I don't want us to miss what the disciples do in response to Jesus' instructions. You see, they're given an instruction by Jesus, and it says that they did as Jesus had directed them. It may have seemed foolish to them. God's ways are not always our ways, and yet they are obedient to his instructions. You see, our job as followers of Christ is not to decide what God should or shouldn't do. Our job as followers of Christ is not to decide if his word is culturally relevant or not. Our job as followers of Christ is not to decide whether it will be liked by those around us. Our job is to be obedient to his directions, to take what he has told us through his word and to follow his ways. And the disciples show us what this looks like as they follow his instructions, as they go and they do as Jesus had directed them, as they get the donkey and the colt and they bring them back to Jesus. The disciples prepare the colt by laying their cloaks on it and Jesus sits upon the donkey 
the donkey, a character who often we don't give a lot of attention to because it's such a lowly animal. And yet, a donkey in this culture was a symbol of peace. Jesus chose to use a symbol of peace to carry him, not a symbol of power, not a symbol that would show his conquering might, but one of peace in this moment. It's a marvel that Jesus rides calmly into Jerusalem on an untrained, never-ridden colt. This is a symbolic act. Jesus, master of all, masters this animal. Since no one had previously ridden this animal, it hints that Jesus is king since none could ride this royal mount but a king. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Look with me at the response of the crowd as Jesus rides in, in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. Dale Bruner, in his very well-known commentary on Matthew, he says, Look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes with no fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them, to carry them and their burdens upon himself. That's the message that Jesus is portraying in his actions. His actions have meaning. They're not just happenstance, but they are intentionally well-thought-out actions by the Messiah. In riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, Jesus shows humility and yet a peaceful confidence that he is the Lord. He comes in peace, depicting nonviolence with this donkey as a sign of that. And he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah that he would come riding in on this donkey, presenting himself as Israel's Messiah. By his actions, by what he did here, he is saying, Behold, thy king has come unto thee. And the people would have known that. That's why they lay their branches and their clothes on the ground before him. It was like laying out a red carpet at an award show. They're preparing the way for him, and they shout, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna means literally, save, please. This phrase could be used either to explain as a literal prayer for God to save them, as it was used in the Psalms, or it could be like an acclamation like, God save the queen. But the weight of these words have meaning as the crowd proclaims, Hosanna, as Jesus rides in on the donkey. Save, please. They know that he is the one who can save them. The prophets have foretold it. He's saying he's the fulfillment of the prophecy. So he is the one they're looking to, to save them. I love how John Piper encourages us that the weight of this word, Hosanna, should impact the way in which we worship. He states, so when we sing Hosanna now, let's make it very personal. Let's make it our praise and our confidence The Son of David has come. He has saved us from guilt and fear and hopelessness. Salvation, salvation belongs to our God and to the Son. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
In these last two verses of the text, the city is stirred up by Jesus' coming in. People understood the implication of Jesus riding in on a donkey, of the prophets that foretold that this would occur. While they may not have believed that Jesus was who he said he was, while that question still may have been present in their mind of, is this truly the Messiah? They would have understood what Jesus was declaring himself to be through his actions. People are asking, who is this? Who is this? Why is the city all stirred up? Who is this that's riding in to the city? And the crowds answer him, this is Jesus, a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now we know that while Jesus was a prophet, he is so much more than a prophet. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the long-awaited Messiah, and he has declared that today in his actions to his people. What's largely missed by those present, though, is who Jesus really is. They have in their mind what a Messiah looks like, how he will redeem Israel. And they're all ready to see Rome overthrown by Jesus and Israel take her place of prominence once again. The people have forgotten their failures. They've forgotten their history of not measuring up to God's standard time and time again. They've forgotten what real leadership looks like. In the Gospel of Luke, we see another picture of the humility of Jesus and the heart of our Savior. Luke records how Jesus weeps as he approaches Jerusalem. One of the commentators said, if only the people know what would bring them peace, but it's hidden from their eyes. They want a son of David to drive out Rome. Thus the city that hears Hosanna will hear crucify him a few days later. Instead of knowing peace through God's Messiah, they turn to political and military deliverers, rebel, fail, and face the wrath of Rome. You see, Jesus came to be their king, but the way in which he would conquer, the way in which he would lead and provide a path to life wasn't through conquering the Romans. In fact, it was the opposite of what everybody expected. It was through going to the cross and dying. Here, the Savior of the world, God incarnate, comes down to earth, comes in all humility, comes offering peace to the people who will follow him. And it's the same invitation that's given to you and I today, that Jesus, as Lord and Savior, still offers us peace if we would just come to him and worship him. It's not a path of conquering, it's not a path of pride and of power, but it's a path of submission and surrender to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Jesus invites us to this path. He invites us to submit to him as our Lord and Savior, to call Hosanna so that he would save us, as he alone can do. There is no other who can save us. There is no other way in which we can be saved or experience eternal life except through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And part of him preparing that path for us is him riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, fulfilling the prophecies, and showing us what it looks like to be king and inviting us to submit to his lordship. So I want to suggest three ways today that we can practically put this into practice this week during Holy Week as we prepare our hearts for Easter next Sunday. The first is to have an allegiance to the king. You see, I think Palm Sunday gives us a glimpse of two different kingdoms. 
Each calls for us to submit and follow, but in extremely different ways. The first is the world. And that's the idea that Jesus would have come as a triumphant military king. For us to bow to a cultural relevance would be following this path of the world. It's to give up scriptural truth for good feelings or to seek comfort or popularity. That's one of the kingdoms that you can choose to follow with your life. And yet it is a kingdom that leads nowhere but death. Or there's God's kingdom that we can choose to follow. For Jesus, humility, sacrifice, death, the way of the donkey was how he showed this. For us, it's also humility, sacrifice, death to self, the way of the donkey, choosing that life of submission to our Savior. Corey Tenboom, in talking about Palm Sunday, said this. She was once asked if it were difficult for her to remain humble, and her reply was simple and just beautiful. She said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of it was for him? She continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in glory, I give him all the praise and all the honor. You see, the attitude of having an allegiance to the king is one that should change our lives and that we give all that we are to him. A.W. Tozer says that people who are crucified to Christ have three distinct marks. They're facing only in one direction. They can never turn back and they no longer have plans of their own. You see, if we live lives that are allegiant to Jesus as king, then his way becomes our way. His truths become our truths. We mold ourselves to him as our king. We humble ourselves and submit ourselves to his word as our authority. Rather than what we think or what feels right or what feels good, we say, no, your way above my way. That's what it looks like to be allegiant to him. The people laid out their cloaks and their branches and cried for Jesus to save them. It is through Christ alone that we are saved. And so our allegiance must be to him alone. We are to be his servants. Acts 4.12 tells us that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And to me, this demands that we praise him. It demands that we live our lives in full submission to him and allegiance to him as our king. The second way that we put this into practice is through practicing humility in our lives. Jesus modeled that so well in his time on earth. Jesus didn't have pride, even though he could have, even though he was well-deserving of all the accolades and attention he got, we never see that pride creep in. He leads with humility time and time again. And he does it this time riding on a donkey. Rather than a powerful military takeover, he comes in peace. Our lives should reflect Christ's rule in our heart. They should reflect the humility of Christ. Samuel Brengel, who was an early Salvation Army officer, was once introduced before he was speaking as the great Dr. Brengel. And he later wrote in his diary, If I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most gracious, helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him, and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me, and that it is not me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the tree it has cut down. 
It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. So may we look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and realize the extreme humility of our Lord and Savior. And may we model our lives after him in this manner, seeking to live with humility, recognizing that we are sinners saved by grace. This fact alone should cause us to be humbled. You may wonder, what does it look like to practice humility in your life? Well, first, it's giving Christ credit for his role in your life, that you are saved by him alone. It's nothing that you did. It's no work that you did so well or a life that you lived righteously that you earned your salvation, but it's because of Christ alone. So it's giving him first and foremost credit for that. It's recognizing that you are a vessel to be used by God, to allow him to lead and guide you so that you can use your life for him. And then looking for ways to give God glory for him using you. That's what it looks like to begin to practice a life of humility. Mother Teresa was one time interviewed on the Johnny Carson show, The Tonight Show, and she was asked how she'd handle all the accolades that came with winning the Nobel Peace Prize. She said, Do you think, Mr. Carson, for one moment that the little donkey thought the crowd was giving him praise and glory instead of Jesus? Similar idea to what Corey Tenboom said, too that we would recognize that the praise is not for us and that we would do our best to point that praise if it comes to Christ who is the one who deserves it. And lastly, to remember to seek to reflect Christ with our lives. There's a Bible teacher who had finished speaking to a large class of businessmen on the Christian responsibility to be a light in the world. He emphasized that believers are to reflect the light of the world, the Lord Jesus And after the class, one of the members relayed to him an experience he had in his home, which had impressed upon him this same truth. He said that when he went into his basement, he made an interesting discovery. Some potatoes had sprouted in the darkest corner of the room. At first, he couldn't figure out how they had gotten enough light to grow, and then he noticed that the cook had hung a copper kettle from the ceiling near a cellar window. She kept it so brightly polished that it reflected the rays of sun onto the potatoes. The businessman said, when I saw that, I thought, I may not be a preacher or a teacher with the ability to expound scripture, but at least I can be a copper kettle, catching rays of the sun and reflecting his light to someone in a dark corner. May that be true of all of us. We are to follow Jesus Christ by our walks and by our words. The way of Christ is not concerned with the desires of the world. It's not concerned with what the world expects of us. It's focused solely on pleasing God in word, action, and deed, on reflecting him to those around us rather than reflecting culture. It should give us pause to ask ourselves, who do we reflect? Who do our lives reflect? Do we look more like what culture says we should be doing or do we look more like what Christ says we should be doing? We want to make sure as followers of Jesus, that we are reflecting him well and giving an authentic picture of who he is to those we engage with. In closing, let me share with you a famous saying from Andrew of Crete in the 8th century. He said, It is ourselves that we must spread under Christ's feet, not coats or lifeless branches or shoots of trees. 
matters which waste away and delight the eye only for a few brief hours. But we have clothed ourselves with Christ's grace, with the whole Christ, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So let us spread ourselves like coat, coats under his feet. So may we remember this morning that we worship the one true God who rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And may our lives be given to him as our Lord and our Savior. And may we spread our lives out before him as a sign of respect and honor to be used by Jesus Christ for his glory alone. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for the humility you showed. Thank you for the care and love that you showed to us by coming down to earth. We are so grateful. And Lord, we will forever seek to worship and praise you for what you have given us. Lord, may the truths of your word sink deep into our hearts this morning. And may we reflect you in all that we do. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.